0: Education podcast listeners. This is Kevin Evitt, the editor in chief of the journal, coming to you today with only a couple of weeks left in 2022. Spending them as well as I possibly can by taking the opportunity to speak with Adine Nelson, who's a pediatric hospitalist, associate residency, and associate clerkship director, as well as assistant professor at Weill Cornell Medicine. And I asked Adin to speak with me today because uh, of a paper that's coming out in the February, 2023 issue with Kinga Elias as co-author entitled Desirable Difficulty, Theory and Application of Intentionally Challenging Learning. Welcome, Adin, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me and making the time.
0: It really is my pleasure because desirable difficulties are something that I've been quite interested in for some time. No surprise given give my own background as a cognitive psychologist. I'm struck by this paper because it did bring together a diversity of perspectives on the concept and wanted to have a chance to talk with you more about
1: that. So in a way, this paper really encapsulates my journey so far through health professions, education, scholarship. This all started for me, oh, years ago, I was at a conference and attended a workshop entitled Make It Sick, which some of your listeners may recognize as the title of a book on desirable difficulty by Peter Brown. And the workshop was really interesting. So I picked up a copy of the book and the book was really interesting. So I started thinking more and more about it. And then I decided that I should do a master's in education and then I decided that this would be a fun topic to do my thesis on. And I sometimes joke with trainees, I fell down the HPE rabbit hole and I haven't hit bottom yet. <laughs> so I was reading all these different papers about desirable difficulty, broadly writ. And I started to see that there were all these different literatures. There's a cognitive psychology Perspective, there's a general education perspective. There's some, although part of the smallest chunk, literature in health professions education. And to my eye, coming in as an outsider to these fields, they all seem to be saying very similar things, but each in their own silo. And these literatures didn't really talk to each other. So as I continued my journey down the rabbit hole and explored this topic, Working on my thesis for Maastricht, I started pulling all these things together. And then some time later, what had started life as the theoretical background review of my thesis turned into this paper saying, yeah, all these different literatures. I want to suggest that they're actually all saying essentially the same thing. And let's try to bring it all together and see what happens. Well, and so I'd be remiss
0: to let you go much further without asking you to define the construct for those people who aren't familiar with the book that you just named or idea in the first place. And in doing so, was that part of the effort? Did you have to figure out if it was a core definition or if those different groups were treating the same thing differently in terms of the terminology and focus that they were using?
1: The terminology was a huge struggle because it was even hard to do these literature searches because different fields are using different terms to refer to something that where I think there's an essential kernel that's the same. Briefly, the idea of desirable difficulty is that if things are challenging, learners actually do better, as long as they're not too challenging. If you picture it as kind of a bell-shaped curve, when learning experiences are too easy, they're effortless, easy come, easy go, it's like writing in sand. Effortless, zen, fun, washed away by the next wave, the next stiff breeze. When you make things a little bit more difficult so that they really take some work to accomplish, learning gets better. To extend the analogy, you can think of it like carving in stone. Really hard work takes a lot of effort, but once you accomplish it, it's right there in our vocabulary in English. We say something is set in stone to say that it's never going to change, and then of course, it drops again. that curve is bell-shaped because when difficulty gets too much, when it overwhelms the learner, they just can't complete the task. It's too challenging, they're not going to learn. To complete the analogy, we'd be like trying to write in diamond. If you could, it would last forever, but you can't. It just doesn't work. And the interesting thing I've found as I've spoken more about this topic in different places is that when I'm talking to an audience of clinicians, they all immediately go, oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah, th- we know this. Because at least in the US where I've trained, teaching attendings have been drawing this bell shaped curve of learning versus stress for generations to justify pimping, to justify asking difficult questions, pushing learners really hard. And let me be really clear I am not advocating pimping, but there is that same kernel of truth there that when you have to work at something a little bit, you actually get more out of it. Let's
0: talk about that tipping point to that sweet spot they just alluded to. And I one- want to get your views on how, especially in the workplace, a preceptor can figure out where that line is between something that becomes negatively pimping versus the sort of challenges that you're trying to propose. But just before we do that, you brought together something called the new theory of disuse. The challenge point framework, the cognitive load theory indicated they all had similar ideas present. Were there differences between them that you had to reconcile or was it really just this idea that you just expressed using different language
1: i think at the basic level they're all saying the same thing when things are a little bit more difficult a little more challenging learners do better where they really go in different directions and i find it fascinating is in taking the next step to try to explain how and why so taking those one at a time The new theory of disuse really gets into the cognitive mechanisms. When you haven't used memories, they start to fade. They become inaccessible. When you constantly, effortfully use them, they remain right at the tip of your tongue. The example I like to give, think about phone numbers. Office extensions at work that you dial a dozen times a day, you know your friends and family members' cell phone numbers that you never actually dial, you just pull them up in the phone memory, you actually don't know because you never have to retrieve them from memory and use them. So those memories through disuse begin to fade. And the connection there is that when you have to use that memory, that's actually more difficult. That's more challenging. It takes more effort than just passively picking the right name out of the speed dial in your phone. The challenge point framework, I love the figure, the graphic. The challenge point framework really starts with the idea of there's an optimal challenge point at the peak of that learning curve, where the challenge is just right, that learning is maximized. More challenging than that, learning software is less challenging than that, learning is less effective. But there's that sweet spot of the optimal challenge point, which, as you said, finding that sweet spot is the really hard thing. But the really fascinating piece is that the challenge point framework also takes the next step of saying, well, maybe why is that point there? Part of it is distinguishing two phases of the learning process. And I'm trying to be careful in my word choice here because what in vernacular common English we use the synonyms, are used as specific technical terms with different meanings in academic parlance. And one of the things that was really challenging to navigate in this process is that different fields use them differently. So the terminology gets very sticky, but if we try to avoid getting bogged down in vocabulary and just do this conceptually, the early part of the learning process, when you first try a new thing, try practice a new skill, learn to do that procedure, learn that fact, compare that early part to later after some delay. Can you still do that procedure? Do you still remember that fact? Can you still perform that process? And the relationship between success and difficulty is different at those two points, as you can imagine if you just think about this. Something really easy, you do it right the first time. The harder it is, the less likely you are to do it right the first time. It's when you look at that delayed later time point of do you still remember it? And that's where we find if it's too easy, you forgot it. You know, you go into an office and someone says, oh, go down the hall to room three. You go down the hall, you find room three, you go into the room. If a week later someone asked you what room that appointment had been in, of course you don't remember. There was no effort. There was no challenge. It was in and out like writing in sand, whereas something more difficult is more likely to stay with you. Then cognitive load theory tacks on another piece and takes this in a fascinating different direction, which is to say, okay, what if this isn't just about how difficult is the task? How prepared is the learner? What's the learner's capacity for dealing with stress and challenge? If we actually break this down and say, There's different components to that challenge, or in that parlance, there's different components of that cognitive load. There's the actual load of learning, there's the level of distraction you have to cope with, and cognitive load theory starts with the same basic point of optimize cognitive load, you'll optimize learning. If cognitive load is excessive, the learner can't handle the load and they won't learn, If cognitive load is too little, the learner doesn't engage and they won't learn. There's a sweet spot. But then the next step in cognitive load theory is let's break apart that total. We have these three different components of the load, and we can not only adjust the total load, we can balance those different components to try to optimize learning.
0: Excellent. And so as you went through that process of trying to juxtapose those and coming to those insights about the unique additions each one adds, how did that combine with your own clinical experience to help you think differently about the issue I just named? First of all, identifying where is the sweet spot for an individual learner?
1: Identifying that sweet spot, that optimal challenge point, really is very hard to do because it's in a different place for every learner depending on their level of training, their personal experience, their personality, how much have they slept in the last 24 hours, it's really hard to get it right. What most of my research has focused on is specific strategies that on a theoretical level we think are beneficial because they produce desirable difficulty, but I've focused more on let's test these individual strategies without trying to worry so much about can we measure the degree of difficulty? So for example, I'm very interested in retrieval practice, which is the strategy of, instead of passively reading your notes, reading the textbook, listening to a lecture, do something active, more challenging, more effortful that forces you to retrieve information from your memory. So flashcards, practice questions, quizzing yourself, quizzing a colleague, taking a quiz. Those things are all more difficult, more effortful than just rereading your notes. And I think that on a practical level, one way to approach this is provide these activities, these learning activities that on a theoretical level produce some challenge and difficulty and let the learners kind of feel out for themselves how much they need, particularly because that's not an emotionally challenging setting. If I give you a bunch of practice questions to do, and they're not being graded, they don't, quote unquote, matter for your future and your your evaluations. They're just for your own learning. You get them all wrong, okay. That was too much difficulty for you, but there's no downside, there's no cost. Maybe some personal feeling of shame and embarrassment for getting them wrong, but you're not doing it in public. That's not like going back a generation to pimping of, on the hospital unit, in the clinic, on rounds, asking learners questions, pushing the degree of difficulty harder and harder till the learners fumble. Taking a slightly different perspective, I think there's a key philosophical difference, if that's not just quite the right word, but there's a key difference in intention between desirable difficulty and pimping. When I'm making something intentionally challenging for a learner, hoping that I'm keeping on the right side of desirable difficulty. I'm doing this for them. My goal is to increase their learning, maximize what they're getting out of the activity. And I think that pimping is often not about the learner, but about the educator. It's a power trip. I'm going to show how much more I know than you, by asking you questions till you can't get them right. And then I'll glare at you like you're an idiot. I don't, want to break learners down. I want to build them up. And I think that as long as we keep that in mind and keep ourselves on the side of trying to build learners up, not break them down, we may sometimes cross the line into excessive difficulty. But on the whole, we're going to aim for keeping it desirable.
0: And how do you make that intention clear in your own practice? That's putting a lot of trust in the learner to appreciate the intention that you just expressed. And I think you know, it is one of the challenging tensions in our role as educators in the sense of the mistakes that the desirable difficulty literature suggests are important aren't really the things that make us feel rewarded from our learning efforts, right? People generally don't like to make mistakes. And you know, given our medical students have so much to learn, things that seem more effortful can often even yield poor teacher ratings. So, how do you manage that balance to help the learners appreciate the educational model that you're promoting?
1: Upfront, first, most honest answer I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, I try, I do my best, but I will not sit here today and tell you that i i have the secret sauce i have the special recipe i know exactly how to get this right with every learner every time we do our best having given that first answer caveat i think there are two important ways to do this two strategies that i use one is making it explicit up front telling learners i'm gonna ask you questions i want You to think so I'm gonna push you a little bit to get you to think and get you to think hard there are no wrong answers this is not about how much you know or looking smart or looking stupid this is about the process about engaging in that thinking and as part of that making it explicit and being open about it is to keep it light I'm not glowering at residents going come on you, you can't even get that one right I try to approach all these interactions with, good try, try again, oh, no, no, no. You had a 50-50 shot and you blew it, try again. And I keep it light and I try to joke with the residents. You can ask my trainees if this works really well, but that's what I try to keep in mind. Another strategy I like to use is, ask questions where there isn't a right answer. Because if there's no right answer, then there's no pressure to get the right answer. But if I ask trainees, What do you think this could be? The whole point is to discuss multiple possibilities. What do you think we should do next? There isn't necessarily a single right answer, so I'm happy to hear and discuss any thoughtful suggestion. The last thing, and this is actually one of my favorites, I do this every single time I round with trainees, at the end of the morning when we're done rounding, I pull the whole group together and I say, okay, going around the circle, in order of increasing seniority, what's one thing you've learned this morning? There's no right or wrong answers. I just want you to retrieve from your memory and express and repeat to the group, what's one thing you've learned this morning? And again, I make it a joke. I always tell them, because if you haven't each learned one thing, then I haven't done my job today. We'll have to just keep rounding until you have each learned one thing. But then when they go to answer that question, they're on the spot. It may be a little bit stressful. It's certainly more challenging to think back over the last hour or two of rounds and go, okay, what was one thing I learned today? But there's no right or wrong answer. And it is exceedingly rare that a learner actually can't come up with an answer. And any answer they come up with is good and is right.
0: And gives you more information in terms of where they are to help you continue to refine and hone in for the next session. So those are very useful examples and I'm going to draw our listeners attention to the fact that there are more examples in the paper that will be helpful for people to think about. The paper also obviously does more to pull together the broader framing that a dean is offering that we don't have time to go into in this context, but I highly recommend it and trust that you will find it in the February 2023 issue of Medical Education under the title Desirable Difficulty, Fear and Application of Intentionally Challenging Learning. And uh, Dean Nelson, I want to thank you once again for sharing your ideas with us, both in the paper and in this format.
1: Thank you for giving me both opportunities. I love talking about this subject and it's an absolute pleasure.
0: In that case, I'll also encourage people to reach out to you if they want to talk about it further, because it's been a pleasure to speak with you about it, too. So good luck with this and with everything else that you're working on.
1: Thank you.